right, well, let's head into Mark. We've been in Mark for 14 weeks, lots of weeks in Mark. Last week, we kind of walked through this journey of kind of understanding rewards, rewards that are given to us who are by faith, are sacrificing, are denying ourselves, are losing today for the sake of the kingdom of God. And, and we said that there are things that we can look forward to that help incentivize our obedience, our, our, our surrender, and our sacrifice as Christians as we put Christ first today. But in that pursuit, it's important that we keep the right motivations and the right heart, that we never put the reward above the rewarder, because the rewarder in Christ is always more satisfactory than any reward that we must get or might get. And so today, we then walk into chapter 11 in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to be heavy on interpretation today. Mark 11 is a very kind of difficult passage to read, and it is probably the poster child for keeping Scripture in context. It's the poster child for reading Scripture inside of the context that was given. There's some deep and profound meaning when we do that. So we're going to engage a lot on interpretation today because we believe that good interpretation creates God-inspired inspiration that leads to better application of the Word of God. And so I'm going to just reveal to you my inner nerd, my inner historical nerd when it comes to Scripture. Sometimes I mask that a little bit for comprehension, but today we're just, I'm just going to let it fly because the, the depth of the history behind what's going on in these stories is important for our understanding. And so lots have happened here before we get to 11. Jesus, after we kind of did uh, our conversation about the rich young man, and then we talked through rewards after so, Jesus, for the third time in his life, tells his disciples, that, look, I'm going to die. If you haven't figured this out yet, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. They still don't get it. Uh, and then he heals a, a guy named Bartimaeus who's blind. And then Jesus has this, what we call in Scripture, the triumphal entry. The tri it's in every gospel. It's one of only a few stories that you'll find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's an important event for, for Christians. Jesus goes into the holy city of Jerusalem. And, and we know that Jesus is going there for a reason. Um, he's on his way to be tortured and executed and killed to pay a ransom for our sin and our disobedience. And so the, there are people in this day, the, the religious elites that just want to end this fool's ministry and they are going to try to arrest him and just end it, kill him. And they think that that's just going to quiet everything down, but what they learn, in fact, is that actually unleashes a new kingdom, a kingdom where death and sin is no longer reigning over us, and righteousness is now dealt by grace and not by merit. And so we pick up in chapter 11, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. This is the beginning of the Passion Week. This is Sunday before the resurrection, the following. This is the last week of Jesus' life. This is the Passion Week. This occurs right around April right around the timeline of April, and we find ourselves five days away from the crucifixion of Christ. And so there's a lot that takes place within this week, and there's a lot that takes place after his death and resurrection. And so we're going to be in Mark for the next two weeks, and then we're going to take a break, and we're going to talk about spiritual sight, and then we're going to actually come back to Mark a month before Easter begins. So we're going to drop this for a little bit, but we're going to complete this right around Easter as we head into the crucifixion. And so uh, I'm excited to kind of get back into it here. <laughs> what seems to be a, a while. Somebody asked me, they thought I said that we we're going to be in this till Easter. We're not going to be in this till Easter. We're going to take, take a break here. 
And so Jesus comes in on, in chapter 11. He comes riding in what they call a colt of a donkey. It's a donkey that's never been ridden before. And so he, he comes into this holy city and there are around him Jewish people the nation of Israel has gathered because they are celebrating. They're parading around this man who is following prophecy, riding in on a colt of a donkey. This is prophetic. The king would come to the temple. The, the promised Messiah would come to the temple on a colt of a donkey that's never been ridden before. This is Jesus fulfilling prophecy, and they are shouting at Hosanna. Blessed is he. They're just parading around Jesus. This is it. Finally, it's happening. They're putting robes on the ground. They're like putting the red carpet down. So Jesus is here. We're going to put a red carpet for him to get to the temple because they had an expectation of what was going to happen through Jesus that was a misinformed perspective. On one hand, you've got the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is coming in, riding on a donkey, he is the anointed Savior. Jesus Christ means literally anointed Savior. And he's entering into the holy city as what would be thought of a conquering king. And they're celebrating him. And on the other hand, you've got these Jewish, these Israelites that had so long waited for the promised Messiah. Generations upon generations had waited for God to return to the holy city of Jerusalem, for his presence to return to the temple. And you see that these Jewish people are just excited in the scripture that we're going to read here. What set the, the nation of Israel apart from every other nation in the world is that their God reigned with them on earth. They didn't have this mysterious entity. They didn't have to make up statues or representation. God himself literally presided and his presence was in the temple. He was with them. That's what makes them different. And so here's Jesus heading towards the temple. Now, just a little information about the temple. The temple was built firstly by a guy named Solomon around 950 BC. It took him seven years to build the temple. And when it was completed, they dedicated it to the Lord. And upon that dedication, God's spirit flowed so outrageously and fully and, and gloriously that it says that the priest could not perform their rites and their sacrifices. They were so floored by the presence of the glory of God that they couldn't do anything. It was that powerful. And so God is in present with them in the temple. And then we learn this about the, the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, we see that they just become, they become unfaithful. They begin to worship false gods. They worship idols. They fall into idolatry. And then God hands them over in that to another nation. He has them conquered by the Babylonians in 600 BC, and they destroyed the temple. The Babylonians destroyed, they burned it to the ground. And the Israelites were devastated. And then just a few decades later, the Babylonians, I said when I told you we're getting history, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persian Empire under a man named Cyrus the Great. And he was a man that was renowned for respecting the religious customs of the nations that he conquered. And according to the book of Ezra in our Old Testament, he decreed that the temple would be rebuilt. And so Ezra begins the process. A guy called Nehemiah comes in. And around 500 B.C., the second 
building of the temple was had. It's rebuilt in 500 BC. And curiously enough, there is nowhere in Scripture that we find God returning to the temple in the manner in which he came to the temple when Solomon built it. And so for hundreds of years, the Israelites were waiting on the presence of God to return to the temple. They're waiting for their king to come and restore their kingdom. They view this as a worldly kingdom. They've been oppressed under a Roman rule that God is going to come and they're going to get this earthly king and they're going to dominate again, just like under King David. They're finally going to be restored. God's presence in the temple is going to be felt. But then we see Jesus do what Jesus has always done, and that is be different than anything else that we've ever seen in this world. In Mark 11, Jesus arrives after the triumphal entry here in the book of Mark, and it says he gets to the temple. All of this grand display for the king coming, he gets to the temple, he looks around, and he leaves. As if the temple weren't good enough for him, he leaves. And this seems to be a disappointment to those who are around. Their hopes had been crushed. And that's speculation. But we know that it affected them in some ways because those crowds that praise Jesus, that bless Jesus, just a few days later, they will be the same crowd that mock Jesus, that condemn Jesus. And so they are disappointed that this earthly king is not going to be taking his throne. And so it's important that we have that context of the triumphal entry of what Jesus is doing as we enter into our text today about the fig tree and cleansing the temple um, so we can have greater understanding. And so let's jump in our text today in Mark 11, verses 12 through 25. You can follow it in your bulletin or read it on the screen with me. It says this, On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. He then came to it and found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who, who, who bought in the temple. And he overchanged the tables of the money exchangers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and, and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what, will, what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And, whatever, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And so we have two 
interesting, uniquely different stories that are read intertwined together where Jesus is upset about something seemingly similar but different at the same time. And then it feels like at the end we have this random conversation about prayer. And so you've got fig tree, cleansing the temple, fig tree, spaceship lands, let's talk about prayer. Completely seems to be weird. And so my conversation with God this week is like, Lord, help me make this make sense. Like, will you provide some vision here? There are reasons that Mark lumps these things together. These two stories are lotted together in Mark for a reason. You won't find these two stories lotted together this way in the Gospel of Matthew. Mark purposely sandwiches an event with the story of the fig tree. You won't find the story of the fig tree in Luke. You won't find the story of the fig tree in John's account of Jesus' life, but you'll find it here. In this gospel, these stories of the fig tree, of cleansing the temple, are really just saying the same thing. They're saying the same thing. One is using imagery, and one is using historical action. And so if you know this, in your Old Testament, figs and fig trees have come to represent the nation of Israel. The prophet Isaiah, or prophet Jeremiah, talked about figs and fig trees representing the nation of Israel. Jesus goes up to this fig tree, and we see him. It's like he, why would he cop an attitude with this fig tree? He, is he just hangry? Is the Savior just hang, It's just not that. This is outside of how Jesus has acted in his entire life. What we know is that Jesus is being prophetic here. Jesus created food out of nothing. Why would he get upset about a fig tree that's not in season? He could make food for himself. This is the only time that Jesus has ever used his immense power to destroy something. And so we have to take note of those occurrences and say there's something important about this scripture. There's something to this. And so Jesus, from a distance, sees this tree, this fig tree, and it's in leaf. From a distance, it looks really good. But upon closer inspection, Jesus finds that there is no fruit on the tree. But yet, it's almost like Jesus expects to eat something. The author said that they weren't even in like fig season. So what was Jesus looking for? Those figs would not have come until June. This was April. And I'm not some sort of closet arborist that I know a plethora about fig trees. I did a lot of research on this. What's going on with Jesus here? Well, what's interesting with fig trees is that they produce two crops in a year. One crop is produced off the old growth, which would make this small green ball that would not be super edible, but it still would be fruit. The farmers would not harvest them. They would let them fall to the ground. But it's also known that people who are travelers, who are hungry, who are starving, they would take these small pieces of fruit that were sour and acidic, and, and they would eat them to have some sort of substance. We know that if the fruit of the vine, if, if the first fruit of the fig tree does not appear, there is no way that new growth figs will appear. And so if you don't have old growth crop, you're not going to have new growth crop. And so when Jesus comes up, he notices that there's none of this first crop, and he knows that it's not going to produce any fruit. And so Jesus, he curses it. You may, no one may eat from you again. And so I want you to understand that this is symbolic of the nation of Israel. 
that from a distance, if you read your Old Testament, if you know the New Testament, they from a distance looked really good. They looked like a fig tree in leaf. They looked like they were blossoming and flourishing. But upon closer inspection, they were dead on the inside. There was no fruit to be found. Their works were hollow. Their pride was immense. They were barren and dead on the inside. They couldn't even see God himself, the Savior Christ, in the midst of them. And when Jesus curses this tree, he is pronouncing to all of us that God's salvation is no longer found alone in the Jewish people. But instead, God's salvation is handed to the world by faith in Christ. This is the imagery of Jesus changing everything on the cross, a work that he's about to do in five days. It's no longer about looking the part or appearing the part. It's about faith in Christ. And then we see Jesus move into the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem would have been a buzz at this time. This is right around Passover, one of the most holy days of the year for the nation of Israel. And so people would come from all nations who were of the Israelite tribe. They would come from all nations as a pilgrimage to the temple on this holy day. And upon their arrival, they were expected to pay their yearly temple tax, which is one half shekel. And so what you have is a spread out nation, the nation of Israel. They live in different countries with different currencies. And so they would come during this time of the year and they would come to pay their temple tax, but they would have to exchange their money, their country's currency for a shekel. All taxes had to be paid in a shekel. And so it would be like you going to Great Britain and exchanging your dollar for the pound or to Germany and changing your dollar to the Deutschmark. They're coming here to exchange. And what the priests do next is corrupt because they begin to assess fees and taxes on those who are exchanging their currency. They are making money themselves off of this transaction. And Jesus knows this. And then those same pilgrims would bring a pigeon or a dove that had to be pure and without blemish, and they would bring it to the temple as an offering, a sacrifice for sin and atonement. And then there would be these temple like, watchers, the temple inspectors that would come to these pilgrims, and they would look at their sacrifice, and surely they would find something wrong with it. And they would say that you need to throw that out, and you need to buy one here, conveniently right here, and it is astronomically more expensive than anything on the outside. It'd be like going to a ballpark and paying $10 for nachos when you know that they're worth a dollar outside of it, but you're stuck there. You have to buy them. And so this is what's happening here in the temple. And Jesus is irate about it. He's angered. He's righteously angered about what is going on. And all of this marketplace is trampling on a very holy ground to Jesus. The marketplace would have been established where they're selling and doing currencies. The marketplace would have been established in the, what they call the court of the Gentiles. I, I brought a, a map so you can kind of see this. This is the temple. You see the temple mound. That's the big structure there. And then the, kind of in the middle is the temple itself with the Holy of Holies. And, and there's a gate for the Jews and there's a, a women's court. But where that arrow points is the court of the Gentiles. And this was a place for every nation to be able to gather and worship and praise God. 
not just Jews, but anybody could come and worship the presence of God. And these priests and scribes had set up a marketplace and defiled it and prevented people from doing such worship. And Jesus is angered by it. He's angered by it. From the outside, that temple looks marvelous and beautiful. It's ornate. It seems like a monumental building that would fit God. Except for on the inside, it was corrupt and full of sin. Upon closer inspection, it was barren. The Israelites missed it. The Israelites missed it. Uh, uh, what we know from Jesus' words and commands is that Jesus isn't as concerned with our practices and our actions as much as he is about our hearts. He wants to transform us from our inside out by giving us new hearts because what is on the inside, what informs our hearts, what we treasure in our hearts informs what we do. It creates our action. And Jesus wants to get into that. The Israelites missed it. They were so full of pride and so full of self-righteousness that they couldn't even see the Son of God, the Savior of the world, in their midst. It was a nation that God loved that brought them to tears that they missed it. And then we pick up and see that the next morning we see Jesus and the disciples pass by the same tree that he just had cursed the day before. And they asked him about it. They asked him, hey, Jesus, there's that tree. And he responds with this really interesting passage about prayer. He says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if, if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I think the most interesting verse, the word I should say, in that entire passage that unlocks some significant meanings is that Jesus did not say a mountain. He said this mountain. He didn't just say a mountain. He says this mountain. And there is something extremely important in that this passage on prayer is one that we like to take and we like to bend it to somehow be able for us to think that we can control God's will and God's person. That if I just come to God with faith, with no doubt in my heart, if I believe that it will happen, then it will happen. This is a, some people take this as a mathematical equation. This, this, and this, and God's going to give me the jackpot. And we apply this verse to, to multiple areas. We apply it to, to physical healings of our loved ones. We apply it to the word cancer. We apply it to, to wealth, health, and prosperity that if I just do these things, then God's going to put out the machine what I want for him. And for many of us, the lack of the right answer to all that we prayed in that spirit, without doubting, with faith, and believing that it happens, when we don't get the answer that we desire for, it causes some of us to doubt ourselves to say, well, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Or maybe I didn't believe that I was going to receive it. But yet still, for many of us, it, it causes us to doubt God. That God, I did my part. I was earnest in my prayers. I believed it. I didn't doubt. Why, why would you let that happen? And we began to doubt God. I held up my end of the deal. You didn't hold up yours, God. So listen, does God answer our prayers? Yes. Does he want to give us good things? Yes. 
Does he listen to the prayers of the righteous man and give them all good things according to God's purposes? Yes. Are we to bother the Lord with what we desire and what we want? Yes. But friends, this passage is not about you getting what you want materially or by your desires. I thought it was until yesterday. And that's why your bulletins say what they say about mountain-moving prayers. But the Lord has worked in me, and I, as I've read this over and over again, I understand that this is not about prosperity. This is not about you getting the desires of your heart. This is something much, much better. This is about salvation. It's about God's availability to you. Because when God says you can move this mountain, he would have been on the path, the mile and a half trek from Bethany to Jerusalem. And he would have saw in his vision the temple mount where the temple sat on top of it. The same word in Greek for mount is the same word for mountain. And Jesus is saying that you can say to this mountain, move to the heart of the sea, move to the sea, and it will be done. Don't doubt it in your heart. There is no longer, what Jesus is saying, any obstacle between God and you. For so long, the temple was what defined salvation, what defined relationship with God. And Jesus is saying here, you can move that mountain. Have no doubt, because that temple, that obstacle, that mountain has got in the way. That temple has got in the way of me bringing salvation to the world. And so here we have Jesus the conqueror, the very presence of God walking into a city that has rejected him time and time again. And he is saying, I reject this. And he's going to move the obstacle that has so long stood in the way of all the nations coming to God. Christ on the cross through his death and his resurrection, for all intents and purposes, removes the significance and the importance of the temple in areas of salvation and relationship with God. God's presence no longer lives in a physical building or a place, but it rests in every son and daughter who confess by faith that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are the temple of God's presence. There is no physical building anymore. And so God is saying, you can toss that mountain into the sea because I'm making myself accessible to you. And if you have faith and don't doubt it, and if you believe and how you have received it, it is yours. He is not taking a physical throne in the temple, but rather God himself is taking up a spiritual throne. It's a spiritual kingdom in our hearts for those who trust by faith. There are no more obstacles between you and God. There is nothing that separates you from his redemption and his love. There is no mountain in the way. He has removed it all. You have access to God by faith. Don't doubt it in your heart. Believe it as if you received it that he is yours. It is not about status. It's not about title. It's not about power. It's not about birthright. It's not about being right in the eyes of the world. It's about him and faith in him. It's about loving and knowing a Savior that has gone so far to reach you. That God has thrown every mountain and obstacle and hurdle in your life away so he can have relationship with you.
and he's still doing it today. Friends, there is nothing that you could have done that far exceeds God's ability to rescue you from. There is nothing that you could have done that would stop God's loving love for coming to you. There is no mountain that is in the way of God coming to redeem you. By faith, he's made access to him. Thrown it all into sea, and he's still doing it today. When I was in college, I remember one of my doormates, he came into my room and he kind of noticed a Bible and he noticed some other Christian literature and, and we just began to have a conversation. And in that conversation, he said this phrase, and I still remember it today. He said, I don't think that God can forgive me. I've done way too much. There's no way he could forgive all that I've done. And maybe you've said that. And maybe you think that. I missed it in that moment. I didn't muster up enough courage to tell my friend that there is nothing that separates you from the love of God. That you can find forgiveness because he's removed every barrier and obstacle to get to you himself. I missed that opportunity to tell my friend that. Friends, I, I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you at, you're at. You have access to the Father. You have access to the Father by faith. You have access to wholeness. You have access to forgiveness through Christ our Savior. He was rejected and despised in this world so that you would not be rejected and despised in his kingdom. And through his death, you can receive life. God has chosen to move his plan forward by using imperfect people like you and I because that's what Jesus does. He does everything different than we thought he would do. He flips everything on, this, on its head. And so friends, this passage is not on prayer as much as it is on how great our God is. It's not about you being able to control God, but you understanding that your God has come so far that he's moved every mountain in your life to redeem you. And he asks us in that, as you remember the overwhelming portion of forgiveness that he's given to you, that you as a forgiven follower of Christ, would forgive those who trespass against you as a sign that you understand of how far he came to get you and how much he moved to bring you to him. So today, as we wrap up, I know this is a weight in our life that you think that God could not possibly love you because of what you've done. And it's so untrue. He's moved earth and mountains and heaven to get to you. There is nothing that he can't overlook and redeem in your life. And we surrender to that. Because it's beautiful. A king rejected for us. And we get to celebrate him. And so today, as we end our time and sing to our king I want you to speak to your heart and remind yourself that there is nothing between you and God he has removed every obstacle and every mountain in your way do not doubt it believe it as if you received it and it is yours salvation is yours today 
And don't leave here today without saying to somebody that I said yes to Jesus because we want to walk with you. And so let's rise here today and let's worship our King as we end our time.